My name is Donna. I am a recovered compulsive overeater and bulimic. I'm really grateful to see a lot of familiar faces, and it's also really nice to see some faces that um, I don't recognize. So I came into OA in 2001. I'll tell you a little bit about myself before I got into the rooms. I started to eat compulsively and secretively and in high volume by elementary school. By kindergarten, I had a very strong sense of self-identity that included the adjective um, fat. I learned that initially from my mom, and then I learned to adopt that language and to apply it to myself for many, many years after that. Once that label of fat was so well entrenched into my identity, no contradictory information could help change that. So even as I grew taller and thinner or became active um, in sports, the adjective of fat was universally true and was all that I could see or believe about myself. I went on my first diet in sixth grade and using my best thinking, I went on a diet of Diet Coke and apples. That's That was the best I could do on my own. And I did lose weight, and I got a lot of positive feedback. And then there were always periods of episodic binging, volume eating. And although I didn't know it at the time, um, before I found vomiting as a way to get rid of the extra calories, I started running. I, I didn't know that there was a term called exercise bulimia, um, but if I would have a binge, um, then I would run a lot. I did not know about laxative abuse, but I didn't know how to run to the grocery store and buy laxatives um, because they made you poop, and if you poop, then you got rid of the food that you ate. So a lot of the knowledge that I have now and the labels that I now know of, like laxative abuse, exercise bulimia, body dysmorphia. I didn't know any of those things. I was young. Another great idea that I came up with by myself, um, I heard people, this was in the 80s, and so it was sort of, the word was getting out that smoking might not be good for you. So people were quitting. And I'd heard that if you quit smoking, you could gain 10 to 15 pounds. So I started smoking, thinking that the opposite would work. So if I started smoking, I would lose 10 to 15 pounds. Um, and by the time I was a freshman in college, I was smoking uh, two packs a day. It was, in, it was probably my freshman year of high school that I figured out uh, vomiting bulimia. And, and that must have been, that wasn't my own idea. Um, I must have gotten that idea either from another person or from some kind of media or movie or something. But it, it appealed to me. It, it appealed to my nature. And uh, thus began the dance of restricting, binging, and purging, restricting, binging, and purging. 
and smoking. Um, and that carried on for, for many, many years. And um, I, I've never had the misunderstanding that what I was doing was good or healthy. I always very clear to me that what I was doing was not good for me, not something I should tell other people about, and that should remain a dark and personal secret to keep between myself and nobody else. And um, that's just how I lived. I started drinking alcohol in high school, and I found that when I drank, um, I binged, and I had uh, quite a number of blackout drunks. My freshman year of college, um, I was 17, living on my own for the first time, and ended up in the hospital due to alcoholic alcohol poisoning a couple of times. So I made a commitment not to drink alcohol, and I stopped. And the way that I stopped was by, in essence, locking myself in my dorm room, memorizing textbooks, literally memorizing textbooks, um, smoking two packs a day, and uh, binging and purging. I did very well academically. Um, I was always um, a high-performing student, which was sort of one of the masks that I wore. I wore the mask of being well-traveled, very smart and intellectual, from an upper middle-class white family, from a very fancy part of St. Louis. Um, You know, I, I just sort of put on these masks that disguised how much pain I was really in and disguised the dysfunction of my family of origin. My dad is a Holocaust survivor and my mom fled uh, communist people. I did things like translate documents for my parents and write documents for my parents and make phone calls on their behalf and so I very much was an adult child. Um, I behaved like an adult as a child. And as an adult, I trick, I resort to childhood patterns. Um, and that's been a part of my story as well. So I carry on into an adult. Time passes regardless of whether um, I matured or not. In 2001, I finished graduate school, and I moved to Denver for a job. And once I was out of the opportunity of my grades to validate my worth as a person, there were no report cards, there were no A's, there were no professors, there was there was nothing. There was just no show up to work, do your job, and uh, collect a paycheck. I started unraveling really fast. In my adult life, um, I have had two serious mental uh, collapses that necessitated um, medical attention. And uh, one of those happened in, in 2001. Soon after I started I had an MBA and I had a fancy job and a fancy title and I was making a lot of money, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't function. And, um, and so 
I saw the psychiatrist that put me on a cocktail of medications and then I, I couldn't sleep and, and then it just unraveled from there. Ultimately, what happened was I had a friend who was finishing her residency. She was doing residency in Denver. She was originally from New York and she told me that she was bulimic and I thought she was tricking me. I thought she was trying to get me to convince her. I thought she was trying to get me to convince her that I was bullying And I was like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're a doctor. You should know better. You know, that's really dumb. I'm pretty sure you could hurt yourself. You might even be able to die from it. And, uh, oh, and by the way, I, I might be bullying it too. And uh, she said, have you ever heard of OA? And I said, no. And she said that when she had gone to medical school in New York, she went to Overeaters Anonymous meetings every single day. And it was the only time in her life that she'd had a reprieve from binging and purging. And so she took me to my first meeting and I never stopped going. She did not go. She did not continue to go. She told me we were single at the time. She said she could not tolerate the idea of dating without being able to drink alcohol and um, eat dessert. And um, she just, she couldn't, she, she couldn't, she just couldn't work a program of recovery while, while dealing with the expectations and pressures of dating. And this was in the early 2000s. And so I think, well, anyway, I don't know. I've been married a long time, so I won't speak about what dating is like these days. But so I came into the rooms and I, I never left. Um, I did not have the recovery then that I have today, but I certainly took advantage of whatever availed me at the time. Um, so I got a sponsor. I've had lots and lots of sponsors that work the program in lots and lots of different ways. And I took something from every single person that I worked with. And many of those people are still close to me, either in memory or by heart or by contacts. And I, I have a kindness for every single person that worked with me. And, um, I learned something and my life improved. I will not say that it didn't. And I will not say that, um, there's absolutely only one way to work the program of OA. But the recovery I have today is as a result of how I ultimately came to work the program. So what many, many, many years in recovery, what many, many years in rooms looked like for me was I abstained from sugar and I abstained from alcohol. I worked the steps to the best of my ability. I always had a sponsor and I always did sponsor other people. I sponsored others the way I had been sponsored. So I used um, a lot of the OA literature and uh, I used a lot of my own best thinking to give people advice on how they should live their lives. I, I lost weight. My, my, I lost 50 pounds, 55 pounds from my highest weight um, to where I am today. But many, many years in program, I was... 35 pounds less than my highest, but 20 pounds more than where I am now. 
And uh, I did not binge and purge. And everybody said, you know, that's good enough. That's good enough. That really is good enough. But I still wanted to die. And um, I've never been at risk of hurting myself. I've never attempted to hurt myself or another person. So from my understanding, I have not been suicidal, but I have wanted to die many, many, I mean, just infinite, infinite hours of my life. Um, I had wondered, you know, when is this going to be over? When is the suffering going to stop? When is this going to get better? What is the point? And even within those years, I got married and um, I ultimately did change careers. I had two children. Um, I continued to travel all over the world. There were a lot of, there was one of my sponsors years ago um, who was a man and that's, everybody has a different opinion about men and women, whatever, but he was a man. And uh, he said to me, he couldn't really understand why I was so unhappy. Because my life was like science fiction. The people were, the women line up down the street, despite me knowing that I had this enviable life, and I understood that intellectually. Emotionally, I still wanted to die. And when that feeling would come upon me, I would contact my husband and I'd say, I'm having that feeling where I want to die. And he would say, uh, do you have a plan? No. Are you at risk of hurting yourself? No. Okay, go to your room and just stay there till it gets better. And that was my best plan was don't eat sugar. Talk to a lot of people in the room, go to meetings. And when I wanted to die, go to my room and curl up in the fetal position. Ultimately, I was exposed to a phone meeting called The Vision for You, um, which introduced me to my first sponsor um, that took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous as a way to work the steps. I did not immediately get it. I had a lot of big book sponsors. I worked the big book steps a lot of different times, but things were getting better and things were getting more clear. So I began to understand what it was to have alcoholic foods. I began to understand what my disease really was, that I had an allergy of the body. It meant whenever I picked up one of my alcoholic foods, I would never, ever be able to stop. And I had an obsession of the mind, which meant that if I were able to put down the food for any meaningful period of time, eventually my mind would tell me, this time will be different. This time it won't hurt me. I'll start over on Monday. There won't be any consequences and on and on. So I bought into that and I was able to abstain from my alcoholic foods. And I still wanted to die. Until it became undeniable that there was something that wasn't working for me. And I don't know by what 
miraculous series of events happened that I admitted and understood that volume eating was at the root of my desire to die. And having the desire to die, even without it turning into an active attempt to end my life, is still life-threatening. Wanting to die brings me one step closer to, to living in the gates of hell than having a desire to live. And I didn't want to live like that anymore. And I finally conceded to my innermost self that I wasn't just a little bit overweight, intermittently volume eating. I volume ate about once every three to four weeks. I'm somewhat famous for my story of eating an entire chuck roast. One night I put a chuck roast in the crock pot. And after everyone went to bed, I ate the whole chuck roast, which had started at like three pounds of beef. And I call that my uh, night with chuck. I cheated on my husband with this piece of beef called chuck. Um, I'd also eaten Costco-sized packages of frozen blueberries, Costco-sized packages of frozen cherries, Costco-sized packages of um, smoked salmon. You know, all of these things, people kept telling me, but you're not eating ice cream, but you're not eating cookies, but you're not growing up, but you're not over-exercising. It could be worse. It could be worse. It could be a lot worse. And nobody said to me, it could be better. It could be a lot better. You could want to live. And ultimately, I was connected with my current sponsor, which is a miracle. Um, I wrote in my mind what I wanted in a sponsor and she miraculously appeared. I'm not even sure she really exists. I've never met her in person, but she met all the criteria. I wanted to work with a woman who was bulimic, an alcoholic, who came from a dysfunctional home, who had children about the same age as mine, and her parents had to still be alive. I had been working in Al-Anon program for a number of years, and I cannot tell you how many times I heard how bad things were with somebody's parents, and they worked the steps, and their relationship, they, they forgave their parents. Things got better. I'd say, you know, what's your, what's your relationship like now? Like, you know, what's it look like? They made amends, they're at peace, and everybody's parents were fucking dead. So I was like, I have got to meet somebody from a dysfunctional home whose parents are still fucking alive and who live down the street and who can help me navigate staying absent, staying sober, while still very much caught in a codependent relationship with my parents and raising children. And I put that out on Facebook and this woman appeared from Buffalo, New York, and I've been working with her ever since. And uh, she doesn't mince her words. She made it real clear to me that this is death. This is a disease of life and death. Although I wanted to die, I didn't want to be dead. I wanted to have the experience of living. 
of actually wanting to be alive. And um, those first few months when I committed to no longer volume eating, which my hardest hours were between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m., felt like death. It felt like I was dying. And I began the practice of reaching out to people by email, by text message, by phone calls. I want to volume eat. I want to volume eat. I see people here on the line who have gotten those text messages, who have gotten those phone calls from me. And I would just, I would text or call as many people as it took until I got a human being who said to me, don't volume eat. It isn't worth it. You will want to die. There will be consequences. It isn't good enough that you're not eating your alcoholic foods. It can be better. It can be much better if you experience entire abstinence. And uh, that has been, it's been, oh, I should have mentioned before, part of what pushed me to my desperation was at some point I really wanted to lose the extra weight and I went on a keto diet. I've had all kinds of brilliant ideas that I've come up with by myself. And um, so I cut out all my carbs and then the volume eating got worse. The volume eating got a lot worse until ultimately in April of 2018, I um, did pick up the sugar and I did have um, a couple episodes of binging on ice cream and cookies and all of those things and vomiting. And that's what brought me to my bottom. That's what brought me to my knees because then it was no longer, oh, that's good enough. At that point it was like, fuck, this is really bad. And so that was uh, over two years ago. And in terms of abstaining from sugar and all my alcoholic foods, and I have not had any episodes of volume eating um, since September of 2018. Um, so I'm approaching a year and nine months tomorrow. So yeah, that's awesome. Thanks. And um, I work a serious program. I don't fuck around. I do everything I'm supposed to do. I write 10 steps when I get agitated, and that is frequently enough to keep me busy writing. I practice step 11. I do not have a concept of God, but I have an experience of God. I get on my knees every morning, and I ask God to keep me sober and abstinent. And when I go to bed at night, I thank God for keeping me sober and abstinent. And that's the best evidence I have that there's something bigger and more powerful than me. I've been in the rooms long enough. I've been sober long enough. I've been abstinent long enough to really beat myself up for not having a concept of God, but I don't. I'm okay with the mystery. I'm okay with having no fucking clue, but I still get on my knees and I pray. And I pray throughout the day. I ask God for help, direct my thinking. I ask God to reveal himself. In the ABCs, it says God could and would if he were sought. And throughout the big book, it talks a lot about seeking God. It never says that I have to 
find God. Just look for God. And I am prepared to do that. I am willing to do that. And I work step 12. I sponsor other women. I've never sponsored a man, so I'll just say I've sponsored other women. And um, I carry the message of recovery. The tradition of, I was going to say tradition one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. And I take my responsibility very seriously. And especially during this time, I know from my husband who works in a hospital, I know from whatever God willing, hoping is somewhat reliable sources of media that people are really suffering right now. It is a hard time to feel connected. It's a hard time to feel seen and heard. And I carry my story, my experience. I'm transparent. I'm honest. I reveal to the degree to that I think it can help another person. 